Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. It is clear now that this combination of asthma plus COPD has occurs in perhaps as many as 25% of, of patients with COPD. So it probably is a fairly common condition. Today, Drs. Robbie Callen and Sydney Brayman join the podcast to discuss COPD and overlap syndromes in this PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Boehringer Engelheim has 100 years of heritage in respiratory disease. Since 1921, they have emerged as a leader in this disease area, having launched several treatments in a range of respiratory conditions including asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and lung cancer. Their focus is on improving the quality of life of patients suffering from debilitating respiratory diseases and enabling them to maintain a more independent life. Learn more at BoehringerEngelheim.com. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not represent the views of Boehringer, Engelheim, or its affiliates. Hello, I'm Dr. Ravi Kalham. I'm a professor of medicine and preventive medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. And I'm Dr. Sidney Brayman, professor emeritus of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine division at the Icon School of Medicine in New York City. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Brayman. It's really great to have you here. Ravi, it's great to be here. Today, Sydney, I want to talk about COPD overlap syndromes, which is a interesting topic in that a chronic condition can overlap with a lot of other things. And how we should think about that in specific is a challenging yet really important question. So perhaps we could start with asthma and COPD overlap, which might be one of the most common things we see. Can you talk a little bit about why we should care about COPD and asthma overlapping, or what our understanding of asthma and COPD overlapping is? Certainly. Uh, It became very clear that, as you indicated, many patients with COPD had somewhat of a uh, a phenotype of asthma, episodic wheezing and exacerbations with wheezing. Uh, And uh, it, it is clear now that this combination of asthma plus COPD has occurs in perhaps as many as 25% of, of patients with COPD. So it probably is a fairly common condition. What came out initially uh, in the uh, literature and in guidelines was this concept of ACOS, asthma COPD overlap syndrome. The S got lopped off because I'm not so sure it really is a specific syndrome and uh, the goal guidelines and the GINA guidelines uh, have said, let's just call this an overlap of the two specific conditions. So the question you ask, I think, is most important. Why is it necessary to define this as a special group? Is there anything special we would do? Well, the first thing I think is defining what is this overlap. And Sadly enough, uh, several years ago, these two committees, the Gold Committee and the uh, GINA Committee, decided that there is no well-defined definition of these two. So how do we begin to pick out these patients? Well, the first is that these are patients with COPD, which means they have fixed airway obstruction. Despite all the therapy, bronchodilators and so forth, uh, these patients do not revert to normal spirometry. The second thing is 
that they have a history perhaps of asthma before age 40. Well, you don't develop COPD very often before age 40, symptomatic. So that would be a clear indicator that these patients are uh, very different uh, than just the normal COPD patient. So these are two of the markers of the COPD. The third would be that there are certain uh, biomarkers that patients will have. These are T2 biomarkers, typical of atopic asthma. Uh, they may be elevated eosinophil counts. They may be elevated levels of fraction of exhaled nitric oxide, pheno tests. Uh, and indeed, uh, these, uh, and, and like asthma, they may have very significant reversibility. Several, um, uh, several, uh, in several countries, there have been groups to get together to try to make this definition with so-called criteria. And uh, honestly, I, I don't think that there's uh, this one set of criteria. But this is how we would identify the patient with ACO, asthma, COPD overlap, fixed airway obstruction, markers that suggest uh, asthma, uh, especially if you had asthma at a very young age. So that's the uh, the definition of, uh, for my guideline, uh, my ideas of where, where we fit these patients. Now the question that you ask, why is it even important? Well, the importance is, as we, uh, know, uh, that COPD, uh, that asthma is an extremely important, uh, uh, disease for treatment of inhaled corticosteroids. So this is the group of COPD patients where you definitely want to treat, uh, with this anti-inflammatory a therapy, inhaled corticosteroids. So I think that is probably the, uh, the, the most important aspect of why we need to identify uh, these patients. Sydney, where does this fit into sort of the current thinking about eosinophil counts in COPD, which are, as gold states, you know, something we ought to measure, it seems, in every COPD patient and pivot the decision around ICS on the eosinophil count is this part of a continuum? Is that a different thing, eosinophilic COPD? Is that asthma COPD overlap dash light? Like, what, what is the deal with all of this? Sure. Well, if you look at the population of COPD with high eosinophil counts, 300 cells per deciliter, for example, and higher, we recognize that most of those patients will have these T2 biomarkers. They will show elevated levels of, of uh, pheno. Uh, they'll maybe have high levels of, uh, uh, of IgE or specific IgEs. Uh, they'll have high phenos. Uh, periostin will be elevated. So you can define that special group. But there's also this group, much, much smaller, that has been called the eosinophilic phenotype of COPD. They don't have any of these markers of, of the T2 markers. They just have a lot of eosinophils. And oh, by the way, they do seem to be doing much better with inhaled corticosteroids than not. So high levels of EOs, the higher the better in, in terms of response to corticosteroids. Uh, that would be the, the, I think, the most important reason why we define this group of ACOs. Okay. Or ACO, I want to pivot. Yeah. I want to pivot to a different one that I find really challenging. And that is the overlap between COPD and bronchiectasis. Yeah. Can yeah. you give us the, the high level view of how we sure. should think about COPD sure. occurring with bronchiectasis? Yeah. Uh, 
Here, too, um, the um, recent literature has been saying we can't make this a syndrome. Uh, you got bronchiectasis, you have COPD here, and the two may uh, be joined together uh, as uh, in one patient. Well, here, too, if you look at the literature, the, the number of patients with this combination of COPD and bronchiectasis is extraordinarily high. I mean, there are some studies 40%, 50 or more percent of the patients. When you look really carefully at these studies, though, you will find that the type of bronchiectasis is really more in the tubular bronchiectasis, not in what we call the cystic or saccular bronchiectasis. That's a pretty unlikely thing. Maybe 5% of the bronchiectasis COPD patients uh, will have those kinds of destructive changes. Now, having said that, I will say that Studies clearly have shown, a number of studies from Europe, from here, from Japan, have studied, shown that these patients that have these markers of bronchiectasis seen on the CAT scan and have COPD defined by we do spirometry, clearly have worse outcomes, more symptoms, uh, more poorer quality of life, more exacerbations, and actually even higher mortality. So it is an important marker that if you see this on the CT in a patient with COPD, um, I think it's, it's a marker of, of a poor prog prognosis. The other thing which is important is that in general, these patients will have more sputum, often more pur purulence in the sputum, and may show some of the organisms that we know are typical of bronchiectasis like pseudomonas. The reason I hate it, Sydney, is that Atypical mycobacterium is my nemesis as a pulmonologist, is that yeah. MAC yeah. and dealing with MAC is really a struggle. And I really have a hard time with COPD and atypical mycobacterium, in particular mycobacteria avium complex with MAC, yeah. and how to manage that and think about that. And then it, it's even more complicated when you think about azithromycin as a potential therapy to lessen COPD exacerbations and the implications of giving azithromycin to someone who might have MAC infection. Absolutely. Is, are there, do you have thoughts about, should we be checking for atypical myco in everyone with COPD who has bronchiectasis? Uh, in my estimation, yes. If you clearly see bronchiectasis on the CAT scan, if you are especially uh, at that stage where you, despite triple therapy, exacerbations are occurring, you may want to consider azithromycin prophylaxis. You may want to consider uh, uh, reflumolast possibly. Uh, that's the case where I definitely would uh, look for MAI before I started uh, the uh, azithromycin. Uh, the, the clearly uh, uh, what your concern is, with is emerging resistance on that azithromycin. We never treat um, uh, MAI uh, with just one drug. So I think, yes, I think all the comments you're, you're making are right on. I totally agree. And I also agree that this, once you have these cases of, of uh, um, non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease, they are a headache. <laughs> they are really, really tough to treat. Keep patients on the medicines. You have to use multiple medicines. So it is really a... Uh, a, a tough combination, COPD and bronchiectasis. It's really challenging. Last question for you, Sydney, in this realm is, do our usual bronchiectasis therapies, sort of the standard airway clearance therapies, bronchial hygiene, yeah. 
Is that effective in the context of COPD? Are there reasons to think it would work or not work? Uh, there are zero reasons to think whether it will or will not work because there are no studies <laughs> looking at this specifically. But yeah, I think that I would just treat as if there were bronchiectasis and treat the COPD as if there's COPD uh, so that uh, we would certainly not use an inhaled corticosteroid in bronchiectasis patients. But indeed, if they happen to have COPD with the eosinophilic phenotype, yes, that would be the one example where you might use, uh, use inhaled corticosteroids. Um, so I think that's the answer that I would give. Yeah. Well, thanks, Sydney, for a really informative conversation about a really challenging topic without much evidence. This is where clinical judgment reigns supreme, I suppose, and your, your insights are totally valuable. Thank you. And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Robbie Callen and Sydney Brayman, and to Sean Mullen for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.